Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Happy Christmas. This week, the panellists are going to give you some of their reflections on 2016 and a look ahead to 2017. Some of the things that have freaked them out, excited them, made them laugh. Some of you have said over the past few months that you'd like to know a little bit more about who we have on regularly, people who work in the politics department here in Cambridge and who come by my office once a week and chat about politics. So this is a chance to hear a few of them in their own words without me butting in all the time, telling you what they've been thinking about and what they think might happen next. Hi, I'm Maha Rafi Atal. Uh, you've been hearing me on the podcast this fall and I am a doctoral candidate in the faculty here at Cambridge, and what I study is um, corporations and their role in politics, with a focus on the developing world, especially Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. And I'm also involved in a number of media projects in the faculty besides um, this podcast, because I'm a recovering journalist um, and come to the news from that perspective. My name's Christopher Brooke, and I'm one of the lecturers in political theory here in the Department of Politics and International Studies. I've published on late 16th century Dutch political thought. Some of my current projects keep me engaged with political ideas going right through the 20th century. I'm currently trying to finish a book about distributive political theory since about 1700. Uh, hi, my name is Fimmer Livesey, and you've heard me on Talking Politics over the past year, uh, talking about American and British politics in the main. My areas of interest are public policy generally. I'm the director of the master's course in public policy here at Cambridge. And my research work looks at the structure of the global economy. So I've got a book coming out in 2017, which is looking at the end of globalization. So we wish it was out this year because that seems to be kind of current. My name is Aaron Rapport. I'm a lecturer here in the Department of Politics and International Studies. I've been here since September of 2013. I moved from Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. My interests largely lie in U.S. foreign policy, international security. I'm also something of a wannabe psychologist in that I apply those theories to decision-making situations in cases of international crisis. Oddly enough, I spend most of my time on the podcast discussing domestic politics, but I swear that I know something about that too. My name is Helen Thompson and I teach in the department here with everybody else. I have spent a reasonable amount of this year writing a book on oil and the Western economic crisis. My main teaching this year is on the introduction to politics course for the first year students where I've been, or still am, giving a course of lectures about democracy. And finally me, I'm David Runciman, as I say at the top of this podcast every week. I'm the host. Uh, I also work in the Cambridge Politics Department. I teach history, mainly the history of ideas. My work is about democracy. What I'm interested in, what I've been interested in for a long time, is how we know when democracy is failing. So 2016 has been an interesting year for me. When I think about 2016, I think about what looks to be the beginning of the end of the world order that was established after World War II by the liberal powers in the West that's fraying on us in different ways and has been for some time, but it seems to have come to a head this year. And that includes the sort of financial infrastructure of the IMF and the World Bank that's been tested very aggressively by the Eurozone crisis and doesn't seem to be up to the challenge. It includes the sort of political infrastructure of institutions like NATO, which are losing their popular support. And if you hear what's coming out of Donald Trump, it sounds like even in the US, there may be some retreat 
um, from those bodies. And it includes, of course, the United Nations, which has really struggled to respond to crises in Syria, to the refugee situation in the Mediterranean. That institution exists to deal with situations like that. Um, and if it can't deal with situations like that, then there are real questions about its viability as a framework for dealing with international politics. So that to me is the story of 2016, is that that order isn't working for some reason. And as a consequence, voters across the developed world are beginning to revolt against it. One aspect of 2016 that I found interesting was the comeback of the term political correctness and people being anti-political correctness. Uh, it's a word that's never meant as a compliment. You don't say somebody is wonderfully politically correct. The question is, what does politically correct mean? Does it mean that somebody is overly sensitive and flies off the handle at perceived slights? Or does it simply mean that people want others to be treated with courtesy. Now, oftentimes, calling somebody politically correct can be just as much of a closure of debate as calling somebody a racist or a sexist or any other ist you would prefer. Uh, so labels like that, in general, I don't think are very helpful for de democratic discourse or political discourse generally. And if you're going to accuse somebody of an ism, uh, you better have a fair amount of evidence to back it up. I've accused people of isms. I'd like to think that I've cited my sources when I do. I think what's been ultimately interesting and probably important in a positive sense about 2016 is, is that politics has caught up with what was essentially the collapse of the prevailing economic order. And I don't just mean that in a domestic sense, but more broadly in an in international sense in 2008. The old economic and indeed political world as we knew it, I think came to an end then. But it took us a long time to realise that the political world of it had come to an end. I think it's taken us this year to get to that point, that what we'd done is to move into an economic world that was increasingly dominated by what central banks did that found increasingly difficult to escape from the debt consequences that were bound up with 2008. But somehow, with the exception of Greece and Italy for different reasons, politics held. And what we've seen this year is, is that politics as we've known it has, has fallen apart under the pressures that had already forced the economic world apart. And I think that we can't get anywhere collectively in trying to get to a better world unless politics caught up with the fact that the old world had gone. So we're living in a new one. It's pretty scary, but at the same time, I don't think there was any alternative but to get here. This past year has been surprising in so many ways. The one thing that actually stands out the most for me is the realisation that politics really, really matters. We're in a period where we seem to have a kind of comfortable settlement. Politicians got elected. They did minor changes. There was no massive disagreement between the parties. Everything was centre to centre right. All of that has been blown apart um, with Brexit, with Trump, with so many other things around the world. And there is a genuine realisation and I hope a re-engagement with politics. And that's the most surprising part of the last year. Looking back at 2016, it's been a tumultuous year. It's been a remarkable year that will keep the historians busy. And the American, the drama of the American presidential election stands at the centre of that drama. I find looking back on it, though, I'm not struck so much by historical parallels as by a literary one. The extent to which 
the drama of the American presidential election very closely replicates the plot of William Shakespeare's Roman tragedy, Coriolanus. Not the whole play, but the first three acts. So consider Gaius Martius, later known as Gaius Martius Coriolanus, and Hillary Clinton. Uh, Both of them are senators. Both of them are well known for their aggressive approach to foreign policy, Coriolanus in Rome's wars, Hillary Clinton as a hawk at the State Department. Both of them are figures whose closest family relationships, Coriolanus and his mother, Hillary Clinton and her husband, have prepared them over many years for a career devoted to the service of their republic. And when the election comes round for the republic's highest magistracy, the consulship in Rome, or the presidency in the United States, the political elites, the Democratic Party power brokers, and the Roman senators cleared the way for them to stand for the highest office and presented the candidate to the people. But the Roman plebeians, egged on by populist demagogues, and the American voters, egged on by right-wing alternative media outlets, came to the conclusion that Coriolanus, Hillary Clinton, were highly unsympathetic figures. They weren't very good at presenting themselves in public and asking for the votes of ordinary people. They seemed more comfortable in the close embrace of the traditional elite. Both were considered to be haughty, entitled, unrelatable even. And in both campaigns, there's a moment of high drama where the candidate flips out. Coriolanus denounces the Roman plebeians, uh, you common cry of curs, and he he rants about how unpleasant, unspeakable he finds them. And similarly, Hillary Clinton, in a notorious moment in her campaign, denounced those who supported her opponent as a basket of deplorables. And in both cases, it's this outburst that sets them up for election defeat. They're not able to secure the highest office. But it's not just any old defeat. Hillary Clinton, at the rallies of her opponent, there were cries of lock her up, lock her up. And Coriolanus's electoral drama ends with the mob shouting, throw him out, throw him out, and he's forced into exile. And as a shrewd foreign observer of Roman politics was heard to remark in Coriolanus, so our virtues lie in the interpretation of the time. And in truth, that is the tragedy of Coriolanus. His moment had passed. Had he become the consul a couple of election cycles previously? Had Hillary Clinton been the candidate in 2008? Both of them might have occupied the highest office, might have been successful in their political careers. But now the political moment had changed, the political dynamic was different, and the qualities that Rome or the United States sought in her chief officers were no longer those that were most distinctively theirs. Well, as I say, the parallels end at the end of Act 3, when Hillary Clinton is defeated and Coriolanus is expelled from Rome, In Acts 4 and 5, Coriolanus leads an army of Volscians against Rome and brings the army to the gates of Rome. And we'll have to wait to see whether Hillary Clinton in 2017 leads an army of ISIS fighters to the gates of the White House. So the question is, is there anybody in social media like Twitter that I've developed something of you could call a man crush 
on over 2016. Uh, I'll be honest in that I don't use Twitter myself or read Twitter very much. I would quote from Star Wars and say that it's never been a greater hive of scum and villainy in the in the galaxy than uh, Twitter, in my estimation. However, I do very much like reading websites. I get almost all my <laughs> news information from aggregator websites. And I would say that I've enjoyed reading Paul Krugman in the New York Times quite a lot. I've also enjoyed the Monkey Cage blog at the Washington Post. Uh, H.L. Mencken famously said that democracy is the art of running the circus from the monkey cage. And you'll probably get a higher level of evidence backing up political claims on that website than you'd see anywhere else. I think that the commentator whom I've enjoyed reading the most this year, whom I hadn't come across before who wasn't on my radar is a man called Ross Duthart who writes a column for the New York Times he's a man in his mid-30s I think and he's Catholic and he writes about politics from a Catholic perspective I'm not a Catholic it's not the way that I look at the world but I think that there's considerable insight both into American politics uh, in what he has to say about it, and in terms of the way in which some underlying questions about religious belief and faith still really matter in understanding what's been going on this year and in Democrat. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Politics in general. One name that crossed my radar screen in 2016 and that I'll be keeping an eye out for, is the political sociologist Will Davis. He, I think, was the first person to write a really intelligent response to the referendum vote in June. Within a few days of the votes being counted, Davis published a piece on a website that explored the conundrum whereby those areas of the United Kingdom, those areas of England and Wales, like Cornwall, or like some of the poorer parts of Wales, that were most dependent on EU subsidy that were the largest recipients of EU funds also were among those areas that voted most strongly to leave the European Union. And he ran a very interesting discussion of the, the social psychology that these patterns of dependence help to give rise and the kind of resentments that they can foster, offering a plausible account of a phenomenon that to a lot of people just looked like foolishness of people cutting off their nose to spite their face. Davis is someone whom I haven't really noticed prior to the referendum in June, but I certainly have him down as one of the more insightful commentators that we have, and I'll be looking forward to his commentary in the months to come. Some of the smartest voices have been James Sarawicki, who is the financial correspondent for The New Yorker um, and writes mostly about business and finance matters for the magazine, but has emerged as a really interesting critic on Twitter, not necessarily about finance issues, so has been able to do what I think a lot of critics have been struggling to do in responding to the new wave of populism which is that there's a debate taking place about to what extent are the voters who are rebelling against the order 
voting out of economic frustration? To what extent is it about cultural frustration? Is it about race? Is it about identity issues? And Sarwicki does a very good job of figuring out how to bring those two analyses together and to explain where sort of the economics and the racial dimensions intersect. And I think he's been a insufficiently credited star of sort of the analysis of this year. I read a number of books this year that have made some impact on me, I think, in terms of the year itself. One of them was George Packer's book, The Unwinding, which is essentially a collection of narrative stories about American lives and what has happened to them over the last 30 or 40 years. And there's a lot of desperation in many ways in those stories and also a considerable amount of hope and defiance. I think that it's a pretty significant book in terms of explaining how America's got to this moment in 2016 through the, the journey into the symbolism of electing America's first African-American president in 2008. And it, it helps to put some context on Trump's narrative about making America great again, not because I think that that's a coherent possibility, but because one can understand where the aspiration, the emotion behind that appeal might come from. So over Christmas, in between taking care of three children, um, we'll be trying to get some downtime. But the reading that I'm trying to catch up with is um, Robert Gordon's uh, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. Uh, That's a really important piece for me, obviously. And I haven't managed to get through the second part of Fukuyama's volumes on the rise of political order. So obviously very light stuff to read over the Christmas and to make sure that I can read the children to sleep. Lots of people have uh, recommended to me a book called Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, which is about some of the communities that have been kind of left behind in the economic transformations of the last 20 years. Um, And I think as somebody who comes very much from the liberal bubble I grew up in New York, um, it's important to try and get a picture of what's actually happening. Um, So that's something I'm looking forward to reading um, over the break. The other thing I'm looking forward to reading is Born a Crime, which is the memoir by Trevor Noah, who's now the host of The Daily Show, but grew up in South Africa and is mixed race and grew up in South Africa when mixed race relationships were illegal. Um, and it's actually a memoir about his mother. And I wasn't planning to read that. And then I listened to him do a podcast on Slate about his mother and thought this is actually a book about a great woman. And I should, it's a biography of an incredible woman and I should read it. So that's that's my other piece of holiday reading. So the book I'm going to be reading with excitement, I guess. Uh, it's one I was sent, I was sent a proof copy of, so I don't think it's out until February. It's a bit of a serious book. It's called The Great Leveller, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century by an economic historian called Walter Schneidel. And what excites me about this book is uh, I like these kind of big, I'm a man with certain, these kind of familiar tastes, these sweeping historical books that try and tell you what's happened since the Stone Age, that gets me. But this one is about one of the basic problems of our time, which is inequality. And it has, and I find this exciting, I'm not sure not everyone else will, it has a fantastically bleak message. And it has a jacket quote from an economist called Tyler Cowen, which really piqued my interest. So Tyler Cowen says, this is the best book on the history of income inequality. That's not a particularly enticing first line. And the central message is that most significant reductions in inequality come through violence and destruction. Have a nice day. That's what Tyler Cowen says, have a nice day. What this book is about is you can have inequality or you can have violence. That's the choice. 
And that is so bleak that it makes some of the things that we've been going through in 2016 look like they are not so bad. And I like books that, among other things, remind us that though lots of things about our world look terrible at the moment, um, the past was almost always worse. And we do live, we lucky Westerners in our privileged little bubbles in places like Cambridge, we do live in amazingly peaceful societies by any historical standards. It would be great if we could have equality and peace. This book suggests that there's a choice. But an inequality is a bad thing and it's driving a lot of the bad politics that we have. But peace is a good thing and we don't want to give that up. For 2017, one of the areas of the world that I think I'll be keeping my eye on very closely is the Baltics in Eastern slash Central Europe. Donald Trump ran on a campaign where he suggested that Perhaps isolationism was the way for U.S. foreign policy to head in the future and also operated on the basis of uh, members of NATO having to prove their worth if they wanted to receive quid pro quo treatment by the United States within the alliance. And that could be dangerous. That could be uh, something where Vladimir Putin or others in Russia would interpret as meaning that the United States is not as firmly committed to the Baltic states as has been the case in the past and could perceive a four-year window, a closing gap of time in which to exert influence over there. I'm not sure Donald Trump knows what he would do if there were a Russian incursion into the Baltics. And if he doesn't know what he would do, then Vladimir Putin can't know what he would do. And situations like that in international politics are very unsettling. It's when nobody's quite certain what the other actor's plan is that you get the biggest space for misperceptions, bluffs, miscommunication and so on. Yeah, I'll make a prediction. I think that one, I guess for me, the story of the next year is going to be what China does. I mean, I think senior leadership people in China have known for a long time that a time was going to come where China superseded the United States and its allies as the major superpower in the world. I think neither in the West or in China did anybody expect that moment to be as close as it looks like it's going to be. Um, I think there's a plan in China that it was supposed to take another 20 years, 30 years before their role as a global superpower was really tested. And it may be that if the U.S. is entering into an isolationist phase and retreats from the world stage, there are a lot of internal issues to deal with in the European Union. So the EU may not be able to play that kind of global actor role. And if Putin's Russia is in an expansionist mode, then there may be a moment that China has to step up. And I think one of the interesting tests of the next year is how do they react to that? Obviously, in the next year, post the inauguration of Trump, everybody's going to be looking to see what kind of president he actually is and what kind of impact he actually has. It's very different being president-elect and actually being president. In terms of the detail, though, the, there are a number of things I'm going to be looking at and paying attention to. In terms of Brexit, given my history and where I'm from, the resolution of the border issue between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland is critical. It's, it hasn't been discussed enough. And when Brexit finally starts to kick in, that's going to be a key moment to understand whether or not Brexit can come through and not impact in a significantly negative way the island of Ireland. I haven't heard what the others have said, so I don't know what they're... I'm looking forward to hearing their predictions. So I'll be listening to this like all of our other listeners to find out what people like Helen think might be going to happen. She probably won't say. And I'm not going to say because it's been a terrible year for predictions, not just generally. I think for me, I didn't see Brexit coming. 
didn't see Trump coming, told too many people on both of those nights that it was going to be all right, felt terrible the next morning having to wake them up or text them and say I was wrong. I'm not going to make any predictions about elections. I don't know what's going to happen in Europe. I don't know what's going to happen in British politics. I, I suspect that this is going to sound really boring. I suspect that a couple of things are going to happen this year, which will really surprise us in ways we haven't even been thinking about because I do think we're at the beginning, not the middle or the end of a big cycle of upheaval. And when these upheavals happen, it doesn't all just follow a pattern. Human beings have a tendency to think that, ooh, we've just been really surprised. So all of the next surprises are going to be like the surprises that we've just had. And they won't. I do think probably in British politics, I would be surprised if the people who are currently leading the main parties are still leading the main parties at the end of 2017 maybe because there'll be a general election, but otherwise I still think it looks very unstable. Almost certainly at the end of the year, and this podcast is going to keep going so we can come back and talk about this. At the end of 2017, we will be talking about at least one British politician who currently is on nobody's radar. Could be someone in the Labour Party, could be one of the minor figures in Theresa May's government who turns out to be the one who brings the whole thing crashing down, I don't know. But I would be very confident that someone will be central to British politics who... Christmas 2016, nobody was talking about. And obviously I can't tell you who that is because nobody's talking about him or her. Until we join you again next week for our first podcast of 2017 when we will start talking about the things that are happening. Have a lovely new year. Thank you all for listening. It's been a great pleasure doing this podcast. We really value all the feedback that we get. We hope you'll stick with us through 2017. It's probably going to be as interesting as 2016, and it might be better. Who knows? We'll be here every week to talk about it. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Um, you don't have to do a prediction one. If you want to do a prediction, you may. I'd rather do something about an overview back of 2016, if that's okay. Um, okay. Um, um, so, no. Blah, blah. <clears throat> okay, this might take a few goes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I haven't thought about this, actually. Okay, yeah, oh, there wasn't, yeah. <laughs> Gather your thoughts, Emma. Okay. Sorry, I'm just going to have to... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.